In this episode of 2020, we'll be discussing issues of mental health and self-harm. It may not be suitable for everyone. Please use discretion. If you or anyone you know has experienced feelings of depression or thoughts of self-harm, you can talk to someone at the Samaritans by calling 116 123 in the UK. Or you can find a free local support phone line if you're listening from abroad. In the year 2000, we welcomed two new shows into our homes and onto our TV screens. One of these shows you'll have definitely heard of. Big Brother ran for 15 series here in the UK and spawned a global franchise. Welcome to Big Brother! It's Friday night and day 22 of the most addictive show on television. Now, why can't you switch off? The other might be less familiar, but we think that it can tell us just as much, if not more, about what Britain was like 20 years ago. It's called Faking It. And it is amazing. And when I finished the month, I was half longing to get back to my old life and half longing to stay. These shows changed reality TV. And in their own weird ways, they predicted our future. Hey Tara. Yeah. You are live on 2020. Please do not swear. Um, I will swear if I fucking want to. It's the 21st century. The future is now, now, now. The winner of Big Brother is... What date is a computer going to think it is when we get to 2000? Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard. I'm Tara Joshi, and I'm a journalist and the music editor at Galdem. And I'm Simran Hans, a writer and film critic for The Observer. This is the podcast where we go back to some of the biggest pop culture moments from the year 2000 and re-examine them with 20 years of hindsight and a fresh critical perspective. Last week, we talked about the legacy of high fidelity, cultural gatekeeping and being a music fangirl. In this episode, we're remembering two reality TV shows that debuted on Channel 4 in the year 2000 and thinking about how they changed the future of unscripted television forever. So, Tara, are you a big reality TV fan? Did you ever watch Big Brother or Faking It when they first aired? So, I guess it's been touched on that we were both eight years old in the year 2000, so I was not an avid viewer of Big Brother at the time. I, too, was not allowed to watch Big Brother. Yeah, that's, that's coded for what I'm saying, for sure. But I'm probably too into reality TV now. I, I watch a lot of reality TV. Um, what, are, what are we talking here? Obviously, Love Island, um, Love is Blind. I mean, I'm saving Selling Sunset for if there's a lockdown too. Um, <laughs> what are you into? What's your... I'm actually not a big reality TV fan. I lived with two wonderful people for the best part of five years. And both of them loved The Bachelor and I never watched it with them. But I I did watch Love Island. I haven't watched the most recent series, but I got quite into it maybe like two years ago. Mm. There was like that summer it felt like everyone was watching it. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm also into like more, more in the way of talent reality shows. Drag Race, America's Next Top Model has its moments. Do you think there's something to be said for people turning to reality TV in kind of times of stress and anxiety as kind of like comfort watching? I think so. I I think sometimes in sort of an aspirational way, like something like Selling Sunset or Made in Chelsea or whatever, like the shows where these people are living lives that 
you will never be able to have and it's beautiful and kind of perverse and there's something something gratifying about watching that whether that's escapist or kind of I don't know like it, there's something about maybe laughing at these people sometimes um like some of the problems are so ludicrous and completely unrelatable and I think there's something kind of funny about that equally I think when you're stressed out there's something about and I don't necessarily think that this is healthy actually I think it's something I'm considering more and more about whether I ethically feel comfortable with reality TV but with something like Love is Blind the amount of like vitriol you feel for some of the people is like it's weird but it's it's kind of a way of like getting it out and you and all your friends are like you're all going through the same thing. And I think there's something really interesting about like the monoculture of some reality TV, I guess. Yeah, it's like rallying around heroes and villains when there aren't actually any real consequences to that. Yeah, except obviously there are real consequences and something that I'm more and more acutely aware of is the fact that these are real people. And a lot of the time they're just ordinary people. Which we're going to get into yeah. more in the show. <laughs> but anyway, I, I guess unlike all of the shows that we're talking about, Big Brother and Faking It were, at least when they started, kind of tacitly framed as earnest social experiments. With Big Brother, they weren't actually allowed to call it a social experiment, I think, but it's definitely how it was perceived. So in today's episode, we'll talk about the naughty's optimism that inspired these shows. And get into the way the nation's appetite for voyeurism made them wildly popular. We'll also be discussing the way these programmes tapped into the tabloid culture of the day, and created a path for an entirely new kind of fame. And of course, we'll look at the traces of Big Brother we see in culture today. To do that, we need to go all the way back to the year 2000. So Big Brother was first devised in 1999 in the Netherlands by a guy called John de Mol Jr. This guy is the same dude who would go on to create the reality TV show singing competition, The Voice. In 2000, Channel 4 acquired the UK rights, and that summer in July, the show premiered. Um, I just want to take a moment to shout out the banging theme song for Big Brother, which was produced by a duo called Element 4, one of whom was Paul Oakenfold, aka the dude who did that song, Starry-Eyed Surprise. A banger. Anyway, I digress. The show began as a sort of social experiment in which 10 strangers live in a house, the Big Brother house, for nine weeks, they were completely isolated from the outside world with limited sources of entertainment. So that meant no TV, no radio, no pens and paper, which is an important plot point for later. Also limited books and magazines. They are under constant surveillance with 26 hidden cameras and 30 microphones scattered across the house. Like in George Orwell's novel, 1984, Big Brother is always watching them. Each week, the housemates had to complete different challenges. In the first series, viewers watched as the contestants practiced their pottery skills, did memory quizzes, and took care of fake babies. For my Love Island family out there, that's very familiar. Housemates would sneak off to the diary room where they would divulge their innermost thoughts and feelings away from the other housemates to Big Brother, who was essentially the producers and the viewers at home. Each week, the viewers would have the power to vote to evict their least favourite contestants. The show aired every single night except Saturdays, and at the end of it all, the last person standing wins a cash prize. In series one, it was £70,000, but later the prize would rise to £150,000. The final episode of the first series was watched by 10 million people, and for a number of years, the show only got more popular. 
It had 19 series, several spin-off shows, and 22 celebrity versions. In 2011, it moved from Channel 4 to Channel 5, which I think is something of a downgrade, given that Channel 5 could never have had the numbers that Channel 4 were able to get. And that is unfortunately where it met its demise just two years ago in 2018. So why was it so popular? Well, it's kind of a weird one, because whenever I talk to anybody about that first series of Big Brother who kind of watched it at the time, they all say about how it was kind of weirdly boring. It was full of normal people kind of doing ordinary, non-salacious things at that point. But I think the idea that everybody was watching it and it was a kind of cultural water cooler moment, I think that's a massive part of its appeal. Mm, I know we both mentioned at the beginning how neither of us actually watched it at the time because we were both children. But it's weird because in spite of that, I was so aware of it happening. And I feel like on the car radio, like on the way into school, they would be talking about it. You know, it was just omnipresent kind of. At the time, the internet was still a kind of fairly fresh thing. And so the idea that you could kind of log on and watch a 24-hour live feed of people was kind of, you know, tapped into this idea of voyeurism. You know how some people will be like, oh, wow, the current day is like 1984. For me, I'm like that, but with the Truman Show. Like, I recently rewatched it and I was so blown away by how prescient that film is because I think it's like 98, but that culture of people being so engaged with the constant feed they have of him. Like when he's asleep, you can tune in. And this is obviously something that will happen a bit later in reality TV, but product placement, like every item that he's wearing is for sale. That just becomes how reality TV is in 2020. So it's funny how something that was kind of making fun of what culture could do, I guess, actually just became a real thing. People are genuinely that interested in seeing ordinary people I mean, honestly, like slightly lose their minds at some points when you're watching them at 1am. Well, I think one thing that's like interesting about Big Brother, and especially in these kind of early days, because, you know, we can talk about this later, but it's slightly mutated into something else and something more mm. sinister. But I feel like with Big Brother, there was something kind of good natured about it. You know, people were tuning in because they were curious. It wasn't at that point satirical, you know? yeah. And I, I guess the novelty as well of not only being able to watch it whenever, but also being able to play into what happens, being able to vote, being able to interact with it was something very fresh. Yeah, totally. I mean, there'd been other shows that shoved strangers in a house together. MTV's Real World started in 1992, I think, which seems absurdly early, right? Yeah. But... um. This show introduced the idea of audience participation into the mix. The, the other thing that was, you know, made this show so fascinating to watch is the characters and the relationships. I mean, it's essentially a show about class warfare, right? And, you know, everybody wants to get behind an underdog. But the interesting thing is that in its first year, a lot of the Big Brother housemates were very normal. So, Tara, run us through the kind of key characters in the show. So... Spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it already, you're 20 years late, so sorry. But uh, Craig Phillips was the winner. So Craig was a 27-year-old former builder from Liverpool. And famously, he used the prize money to pay for a friend's lung and heart transplant. There was also Anna Nolan, who you might remember as the runner-up, and a 29-year-old Irish lesbian former nun who uh, used to work as an office manager of a skate shop. Uh, a lot of people really liked her. Yeah, Anna's a sweetheart. They, they, there's a point in the show where 
she actually asks to leave, it becomes too much for her. And um, all the house just rallies around her and they're all like, you know, you've been here for us. So if you want to go, we'll let you go. And it's just very sweet. And obviously she stays and does incredibly well. But still, it's a testament to how loved she was in the house. There's also someone who outside of the house, at least, was less well loved. um, And that was Mel. I think she worked as a computer salesperson in the outside world. And she is a mixed race black woman. And in the house, she... She has a little snog with two of the guys, which 2020 reality TV wise, like that's not surprising. That's not at all shocking. But the public were kind of incensed by this and her portrayal in the media, I guess, unbeknownst to her and unbeknownst to any of them because they're all in the house. She's portrayed as a tart, a bitch. She's compared to Scary Spice. There's a lot of like entrenched misogynoir in how she's treated. One of the most adept members in the group at Using Touch is Melanie. We see her in a lot of places hugging people and comforting them, almost in a very maternal way. The other thing that we see, however, is how good she is at sexualizing touch. So there's a lot of um, holding people for just that little bit longer, um, allowing people to touch her in a certain way. Don't forget, what these guys need is a mother and a lover. And what she's saying through her communication of touch is, you know what, I can be both. But finally, I guess there's one person who we have to talk about from series one. Because every story needs a villain, right? We are, of course, talking about Nick Bateman, a.k.a. Nasty Nick. In 2000, he was a national news story, appearing on the front pages of magazines, tabloids and broadsheet newspapers. Today, this seems unremarkable. But 20 years ago, that prime page space was reserved for celebrities, not random people who were famous for being on TV shows. So, how did Nasty Nick herald this new era of celebrity, Simran? I think to really understand how pivotal Nick's role is in all of this, we first have to tell the story of how and why he got his nickname. So, the way the evictions worked in the Big Brother house was that the housemates would nominate two people for eviction, and then the public would vote for the one person they wanted out. And obviously, the person with the most votes would leave the house. During his series, Nick was liked by the housemates, and he never received any eviction nominations. However, six weeks in, the producers became suspicious that he was plotting something. So it transpired that, against the rules, because you weren't meant to have pen and paper, he was writing notes down, and he was writing the two housemates that he wanted evicted, and then he would quietly show this to other people. And basically trying to manipulate the votes, trying to sway other housemates. And people got angry. There's a big confrontation moment with Craig. And basically people are upset because he's treating things as a game. Even though they're all kind of aware that it's a game, he broke the rules of the game. As soon as everyone's up, the meeting is called. uh, Sorry I have to say it, Nick, but very disappointed in yourself. I not only feel I'm quite positive and got evidence uh, that you're plotting a, pl- a very dirty plan on everybody in here to vote against each other and steer it divert from you. Oh, yeah, it's a, a, an absurd, Craig. It's not one of your... Yeah. OK, y- you may think it's absurd, Nick, but let me point out a few facts here. Uh, there's a number of people sitting around... He also was caught out lying to the housemates about his life on the outside. Very, very early on, there's a bit where they have to talk about your deepest love, talk about your first love or something like that. His is so bad. He says that his wife died in a tragic car accident. I don't even think he had a wife. 
No, he didn't. And so he so later on in the series, he admits to Mel, maybe, that basically before he got into the house, one of his mates said, you know, you should have an outrageous story. So he decided to just say that, which is wild. But obviously garnered some kind of sympathy around him. You know, Nick was very posh, public school educated, had been a stockbroker in the city for a few years at this point. So like, he kind of serves as a, a counterpoint to Craig, I guess, in terms of how they're being portrayed in the media at this time as well. Totally. He was this privileged liar compared with salt of the earth Craig. And, you know, people didn't like him on the outside. So this combined with, you know, his portrayal in the show and public opinion of him was the perfect storm. And Nick actually started receiving death threats. Channel 4 was so worried about his safety that, as BBC News reported, programme bosses have booked dozens of hotel rooms around the south of England in an attempt to keep Nick's location secret. He was whisked away from the East London house in a blacked-out car as five others sped off in separate directions to throw people off the scent. I mean, can you imagine it? I read as well that in the hotel he does end up in, one of the hotel staff leaks the news, so the press all arrive, and like, a helicopter has to come and take Nick away. It, it's wild to think about now. This isn't, you know, Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie that we're talking about. This is some random dude who's famous for being on a TV show. Like a random stockbroker, you know? Like, and on that note, do we think that, quote unquote proper news outlets would cover that story in this way today? I definitely don't think so. I, I feel like these kind of little moments would play out maybe on Twitter, on social media. They might be reported online, but I can't really see kind of mainstream news outlets seizing on something as kind of minor as this. And I guess it's this kind of twin idea of the media coverage being quite negative, but also there being so much of it. You know, during that first series of Big Brother, the Sun newspaper was running an article pretty much every day about Big Brother. And like we said, Nick was national news. The kind of level of coverage, the the deluge of coverage, it gave the audience the feeling of being a producer because they have this sort of perceived ownership over the contestants. And I guess we're seeing here the beginning of the idea of reality TV participant as a celebrity, like as a career path. At that point, like none of us knew what was going to happen. But, you know, 20 years later, a lot of these people do become, if not celebrity celebrities, they become personalities for sure. Which is interesting because up until that point, it's not like reality TV shows didn't exist. It's just that people who became famous through reality TV were famous for their talents, not just for kind of who they were and how they were perceived when they're sort of sitting around chilling in a house. Yeah, so you start to see people as the series go on. I don't know if this is like a casting choice from the producers or just a difference in the sort of people who are applying for it, but you start to see much bigger personalities coming through for sure. Um, if you've read Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror. I have. So in Trick Mirror, which is, I guess, a collection of essays around the self, but the self as seen through like living in the age of the internet, living in the age of social media and like blogging, but also the age of reality TV. And I think she does a really good job of conveying some of what we're talking about today, the sort of rise in interest in the self that our generation kind of uniquely has, I think. I assume that you're, you're bringing up Jia to talk about the amazing reality TV show 
essay that she has in which she talks about her own experience of being on a reality TV show in Puerto Rico. Yeah, which is incredible. Girls versus boys in Puerto Rico. But I think one thing that's really interesting that she's sort of trying to find out through the essay in her mind, everyone who has been cast for it has been cast because they fulfill a specific stereotype, a specific role. But actually what the producer, when she tracks the producer down, the producer says, well, actually you were cast because you were confident people, you had big personalities. And I think that's something that maybe we as viewers start to put certain archetypes on people. Like we start to say like, okay, this person's kind of yeah, like the bitch, the sweetheart, mm. the strong, silent type. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think a lot of the time when they're casting, maybe that's sort of subconsciously there. But a lot of the time, it's just you're a big personality. You will make noise in this house. You will bring viewers in. And, you know, the difference between the people who apply for reality shows today versus the people who were applying for them back then is that a lot of these people are already kind of mildly well-known you know uh, yeah they're at least micro influencers right yeah exactly like you will go on their instagram page and they already have a whole bunch of followers yeah and we're also in this sort of whole system becomes self-renewing if, if that's the right way of phrasing it mm. um you know you come off a reality tv show and then you go on to present something else or you go on i'm a celebrity get me out of here or you go on celebrity bake-off yeah so um yomi edagoke wrote a really good article about this for the guardian about this new type of celebrity where any given reality show that is celebrity something, more often than not, the person is just someone who has been on a different reality show before. And it's, it is this weird cycle. We talk about the willingness to share, particularly on social media, as a millennial thing. But actually, you know, young people in the noughties, Gen Xers, were already more open about sex and drugs and sort of general privacy than the generation before them. You could argue that, you know, the willingness to kind of lay everything bare is a kind of Gen X thing. I guess that the emergence of reality TV at this time is kind of a reflection of this change of general mood with this new generation. There's a really great quote from Tim Gardham on the BBC Radio 4 programme, The Reunion. He was the commissioning editor at Channel 4 at the time that Big Brother was going out, and he kind of sums up the mood of the era perfectly. You've got to look back to Big Brother as a period piece of what is essentially a vanished age. This was 2000. It's the end of the feckless decade that was the 1990s. It's uh, when Tony Blair is still in his first term as Prime Minister. It's before 9-11-2001 and a darker time. Looking back on it, a completely different sort of Britain. It's a Britain that is transitioning between John Major's Britain and Tony Blair's Britain. And so out of this comes this programme, which is candy floss in many ways, but also is telling you an awful lot when you look back on it of what sort of society we're becoming, what a younger generation is beginning to think about and what a, young, a younger generation is comfortable with. The Tories were no longer in power, the economy was healthy, and the country was yet to participate in an illegal war. There weren't the same reasons to be cynical as there are today. Of course, a good faith social experiment was the most popular thing on television. This naive optimism of the noughties also produced another Channel 4 show, created by reality TV titan Stephen Lambert, who went on to make several popular formatted reality TV shows, including Wife Swap, Gogglebox, The Circle, and literally dozens more. These programs put real people in constructed, controlled scenarios. I would say his magnum opus, 
is still faking it. Yeah, I would agree. I love the circle, so no shade to that. But yes, faking it is incredible. What happens when you take a cellist, a vicar, dancer, or a decorator, and give them four weeks to fake it as someone else? So apparently Stephen Lambert got the idea from his wife and he sort of is reported as saying that she woke him up in the middle of the night and suggested that he did um, Pygmalion, but for real, as a reality TV show. And so for anyone who doesn't know the story of Pygmalion, it's the George Bernard Shaw play about a flower girl who is taught upper class manners. So it's essentially a story about somebody going from... It's my fair lady. It's, you know, someone having coming from one world having like one skill set and then being taught the rules and ways of this other world and trying to fit into it and seeing if everyone is fooled into that exactly and so volunteers would spend a month learning how to fake it as something totally removed from the world that they existed in in some of the best episodes a cellist becomes a dj a punk becomes a classical conductor and a woman who works in a corner shop fakes it as a showbiz correspondent mentored by claudia winkleman and piers morgan jesus um so they then have to convince a panel of expert judges that they were the real deal um so maybe three other people who are actually in that profession will also be doing the same things as them and this panel of experts will have to try and guess who has been faking it so crucially there was no prize and no guarantee of fame most people actually just went back to their normal lives it was about the emotional journey that you went on and it is just such a roller coaster watching it it really is um the show ran for 48 episodes between the year 2000 and 2006 it went on to win two BAFTAs, an international Emmy, and it had at its peak a weekly viewership of around 2 million. If we see Big Brother as the dark side of the noughties, as the sort of emblematic of the vacuousness and the voyeurism, faking it is born of the optimism and the naivety of the early noughties. It hinges on this idea that anyone can reinvent themselves and that we're all different and separate, but ultimately equal. It's the same ethos as Tony Blair's message of education, 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 it's these ideas of social democracy, of multiculturalism, of pluralism. Um, and they all kind of have this blindness to the structural problems of race and class that are totally emblematic of the era. You know, now we live in an era of identity politics, but then people kind of wanted to turn a blind eye to difference. Yeah, like, you know, that concept, which I, th I think to an extent you still sort of see with a generation older than us is that idea of I don't see colour because people think that the best way to create a leveller is to pretend that the systemic inequalities don't exist but obviously that is very flawed but a show like Faking It I guess it does acknowledge differences in a way it's not to say that there's not acknowledgement of class just maybe in a kind of different way to how it might be done today well, it's what's weird about it to me is that there is an explicit acknowledgement of class difference, right? Like this is what some of the, particularly the early episodes really hinge on. I'm thinking of episode two, which is called Shop Girl to It Girl. Um, and it's about this working class pharmacist from Yorkshire who has to pass as a high society lady. Her name is Lisa. They call her Lady Lisa. And the challenge at the end is that she has to attend this dinner with a bunch of people who are very well-connected and well-educated and 
um, have these kind of rich parents and she has to both charm the men of the party but also pass herself off as somebody who comes from that world. It's really funny watching it because the episode is sort of through her perspective you know we watch her on this journey and it really sort of illuminates how ludicrous that world is like it's not kind of putting it on this platform of this is aspirational this is what you should want like she gets fed up with it there's a point I think one weekend where she goes home for the weekend even though you're not meant to do that but she's just so overwhelmed and annoyed by it she like wants to take off her high heels she thinks it's sexist it's totally Um, The whole society that she has to pretend to be part of is totally critiqued. It's an example of kind of punching up rather than punching down. You can't walk around barefoot in London. Oh, I'll put them back on. You've got to put them back on. For heaven's sakes. Have you ever seen Princess Diana? I don't care. Really? (laughs) It's my face. But have you ever seen Princess Diana coming out of a party? Oh, God. But why is it that women wear shoes like that? Is it because... Because of some sort of female code? Or is it because men make you wear things like that, do you think? Personally, I just don't give a shit what anybody thinks. I think you should be able no, to wear what you want like to I don't care. At the final challenge of the dinner party, it's actually quite funny because everyone else is so quick to talk about all the incredible things that their families are doing. And the reason that she stands out to a lot of the people is because she just wants to, like, connect with people in a real way like but and it's one of the things that one of her coaches tells her not to do is to try and relate to people and have like nice normal conversations because he's just like they'll spot you they'll know you're (laughs) not one of these people um and yeah it's kind of a funny somewhat damning framing of that world which I don't know it's kind of refreshing there's also a really interesting episode a little bit later on, I think it's in 2001 or 2002, um, it's the Lawyer to Garage MC episode, which kind of flips the script and does it the other way around. It um, has this very middle class, mixed race black lawyer called George LeBega, reimagined as MC Justice. He's mentored by MC Creed and Page You Go. They kit him out in an iceberg history Looney Tunes sweatshirt with like baggy jeans and loads of bling. And they call him Ghetto Fabulous. And it, it kind of, we're encouraged to laugh at this posh guy who has no rhythm and can't dance and and he isn't able to rap and he's not cool and he doesn't have any black friends. And, um, you know, the the sort of emotional arc of the show is that he becomes more in touch with his blackness and he connects to his heritage. And it's interesting because obviously it is his story, but I don't know, to my mind, it is a little bit white gazy. Like it panders to this journey of this guy who's, who's kind of scared of black people at the beginning. He literally says it. And then him sort of coming at the end being like oh actually they're not so bad (laughs) and it's just a really strange thing to watch and I don't think it would have been presented in this way if you were to make that show today. My mother's white, uh, my father's black but I was essentially brought up in the white community. I've had very little contact with the black community, it's always been something that's made me nervous. For a man who hasn't lived a very integrated life, it will be a shock. Can George apply his highly trained legal brain to the explosive art of spitting lyrics? It's worth saying that watching that episode now, it just 
encourages you to take it all in good faith. And I just don't really think that that kind of program could be made today. I think in 2020, we've come to a place where we expect more. We expect more nuance. We expect more cultural sensitivity. We don't rely on stereotypes in the same way or or kind of assumptions that we've learned. And if those things play out, then they're immediately critiqued on social media. Yeah, you know, like ultimately, while it is kind of a funny moment where he tells all these garage MCs and producers that he likes listening to Shania Twain. Honestly, same. You know, fair enough. Fair enough. I won't call you out on that. Um, But while it's funny, it's also kind of it plays into this idea that if you behave in a certain way or you like certain things, you are therefore like coded as white. And I think in 2020, we kind of, I guess we interrogate that idea of like being an Oreo, being a coconut, like that's no longer like acceptable framing. As a time capsule though, it's it's weirdly fascinating. Oh, for sure. And like watching him have his moment fooling a bunch of people into thinking he's a legitimate carriage MC, you know, it's it's compelling viewing. I did it, I faked it. <laughs> The people who took part in faking it mostly returned to their normal lives. They never ended up with the sort of profile that Big Brother contestants had when they left the house. Shows like Big Brother set an example for reality show contestants who are looking to cultivate fame. But it's worth looking at the effects of that instant fame. How could anyone be prepared for dealing with an experience like that? And what do these shows actually do to take care of their stars? In a two-part Guardian feature by journalist John Ronson, He spent a year following contestants from series one of Big Brother after they had left the house. Nick Bateman said that he felt the producers had left them hanging high and dry. He said that there was no infrastructure to deal with the mayhem that ensued. Just a quick visit from the psychologist and that was it. In that interview, Nick foreshadowed the potentially tragic consequences of participating in reality TV. So I I feel like it's something that we've touched on mob mentality, the reaction of the public to these people once they emerge back into the real world and, you know, constant death threats, just trial by tabloids, you know, and the effects that that can have on a person, as well as just in general, suddenly being the object of everyone's voyeurism now you have left the house, like actually understanding the weight of all the public knowing who you are. I think for anyone, that would be a really overwhelming thing. Completely. And I think the other thing that people aren't often equipped to deal with is the kind of financial implications of going from somebody who maybe doesn't have loads of financial security to suddenly having these winnings and these endorsement deals that seem like a kind of golden ticket to a new life, but actually carry lots of hidden costs and kind of, you know, people get into debt. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the sort of thing that now... ITV, for example, tries to be mindful of with Love Island contestants, but that has only happened off the back of, you know, several very tragic incidences. Yeah, completely. I mean, one thing that we should say about that John Ronson article and and the Nick Bateman quote that you read out, John Ronson's retort is, but nobody's going to kill themselves. And of course, we know that's not the case. There are two Love Island contestants who died by suicide, um because of online trolling, abuse, debt. Um, There was also the presenter, Caroline Flack, uh, who suffered extreme public scrutiny after being accused of domestic abuse by her boyfriend. 
And in the US, at least three former contestants on The Bachelor have died by suicide. So I guess as we have touched on, not all the contestants are necessarily aware of the mental health risks that are attached to their sudden fame and its shelf life. People might go on these shows expecting to become rich and famous, but like you said, sometimes they'll get into extreme debt. Joe Hemming psychologically assessed Big Brother contestants before they went on the show, and, and she's kind of talked about this, and she said uh, that it can be absolutely soul-destroying. She says, I tell them that there'll be photo shoots, magazine interviews, and TV appearances, but that'll only last a week. Many of them find it difficult to grasp that life goes on without any further fame. They're in this twilight world where they feel like they can't go back to their old jobs and are just trying to catch up with fame. And obviously all of this stuff has started raising conversations about aftercare and Love Island now has aftercare support in place which includes financial advice and how to deal with social media um, as well as a minimum of eight sessions of therapy and on site there is now psychological support always available but I don't know again it's like the barrage of abuse you're getting on social media all the time just I don't know if any of that would be enough. You know, we have to ask the question, how aware or unaware are people of, of what they're getting themselves in for? I mean, I, I guess I mentioned this at the beginning, how I have this weird ethical conundrum when it comes to watching reality TV, because for all that you feel very strongly about these people and the things that they do and feel as though, you know, you're okay to judge these people because they have placed themselves on this show for you to do that. But I think it's something that we always have to remind ourselves. These are real people. They are vulnerable people. They are like living in front of you. They are growing in front of you. And, you know, it's not it's not okay the way that they get treated. And, you know, it takes us back to Nick and Mel and all of those people coming out of the house. Like, it, it doesn't matter how long reality TV has existed, really. And I'm not even sure it matters how much aftercare there is. Like, you can't... I don't think you can really prepare someone for that change in your life. I wonder if there's a, a kind of bigger philosophy that Big Brother kind of pushed about what it means to kind of seek approval and seek validation from performing and, and being yourself y you know like you wouldn't go on a show like big brother where you were under surveillance unless part of you wanted to be watched yeah and i think it is interesting to talk about this now because obviously we're in this strange year where everything in terms of our social performance is kind of limited and so we willfully perform ourselves online like like i think with a lot of people in our generation social media has created this space where we want to be watched it, it's different obviously to being on a 24-hour surveillance reality show but a lot of the principles are not that dissimilar yeah it's more managed now and and I guess you could say that people are more in control of how they're perceived there's not some producer um, creating a narrative about our lives but you could argue that we create those narratives ourselves yeah but I wonder talking about that sort of naive optimism of something like faking it um, talking about Big Brother having contestants who were actually pretty much just normal people like could you make those shows again now in that way and have them taken in as enthusiastically? I guess no they couldn't 
Um, but an updated version might be interesting, you know, something that harnessed the the good faith and the kind of sweetness of faking it would be really welcome, but perhaps with a little bit more understanding of kind of class and race difference mm. baked into the show. And the other thing that that has changed is the cultural context. You know, I just don't think we're in a time of um, financial and, and political happiness. And so perhaps, you know, something as kind of optimistic and, and positive and sweet as faking it, perhaps it feels too frivolous for the times we live in. I don't know, because... It- not all of it is like frivolous per se. And I also think there are a lot of frivolous TV, sh- reality kind of TV shows. You know, everyone watches Bake Off. Um, I say everyone. I watch Bake Off. I'm really telling on myself in this episode. Um, you know, um, I, with faking it particularly, I guess we were talking about the idea that is really rife in like Blairite politics of like the fact that there is this space of equality there is this aspiration that everyone could get to a certain place with the right help but i think after what over a decade of tory government like i don't think anyone is in that headspace anymore because we just know that's not true at the top of the episode i mentioned that i don't really watch loads of reality tv but obviously for the purposes of this show i went back and absolutely binged faking it and I really enjoyed it. I, I, I'm not sh- like I said. I'm I'm not sure it it could exist today, or even that we'd want that. But as a time capsule of uh, the year 2000 or and the early noughties, it feels like such joyful escapism. I guess I'm finally kind of coming around to the idea that you know that's maybe why reality TV is so beloved by so many. Where are you at with your reality TV journey? I mean, listen, I'm not going to lie. Do I have Below Deck and Selling Sunset in my to-watch list on Netflix? Yes, of course I do. But I guess moving forward, I'm trying to be more mindful in how I watch these shows, how I engage with these shows. If you're enjoying the show, which we hope you are, please share it with all your friends. It would also really help us out if you left us a rating five stars only please and a review on your podcast app as always there are links to everything that we've referenced in today's episode in the show notes and you can also find the link to suggest an episode topic to us there you can follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at mh2020 and we're back next week on tuesday talking about white teeth the novel that launched Sadie smith a 24 year old from northwest london into the highest literary circles And joining us for the episode is our first special guest, Charmaine Lovegrove, publisher at Little Brown Imprint, Dialogue Books. Twenty Twenty is a Message Heard production, written and presented by me, Simran Hands, and D-list celebrity Tara Joshi. Produced and edited by Jake Otayevich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.